We discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. This is part two of our coverage of the murder of Philip DiMartino, and I'm joined again by retired FBI profilers Angela Serser, Bob Drew, and Susan Kostler Drew. Before we get back into the discussion of this case, however, I want to thank all of you who are listening to us. It's interesting to see geographically where you're all from, all over the U.S. and even in other countries, which is astonishing to me. The top three places where we have our most listeners are the Bronx, New York, Dallas, Texas, and coincidentally, San Francisco, California. So for those of you in San Francisco, particularly if you're familiar with the Castro District, please get the word out about this case. Someone may know something, or they may need to be reminded that they know something. The other thing is that we are working on transcripts for all our episodes, and you will be able to access them on our website, www.truecrimeconsult.com. And for these two episodes about Phillips' murder, we'll be posting transcripts in Spanish as well. Now back to the case and a quick recap. 36-year-old Philip DiMartino was found stabbed to death in his San Francisco apartment on Monday, August 2, 2010. However, it is believed he was killed on the previous Friday night, July 30, 2010, after returning home from a bar called Badlands, which is located in the Castro District of San Francisco. There was no forced entry and no signs indicating robbery was a motive. It appeared Philip was killed by someone he invited into his home that night. In part one, we discussed our observations of the very quick escalation to violence by the offender and possible reasons for this. A high level of emotion, mental health issues, drug or alcohol use, or a combination of these factors. We also noted steps taken by the offender indicating rational thought. He staged the crime scene by writing notes. There was evidence he injured himself and attempted to bandage his wounds, and he may have changed into the victim's clothing before leaving the apartment. So at this point, let's talk about who we think, based on the information we have, who we think this offender is, or how this offender presents in the world. There's a couple of things. First impression is this offender is a Spanish speaker, And it is likely that Spanish is his first language. It is also likely that he has very limited command of the English language. And that has some implications for life in America. So at the time of the crime, this individual probably has very limited command of the English language. This would limit the level of and the amount of possible employment for this offender. He 
likely is not employed in a job that requires reliance on a great deal of effective communication. In other words, the less he has to communicate, the better suited he would be to that job in an English-speaking community. We know that he is, based on Mr. DiMartino's preferences, he is likely younger than Mr. DiMartino was, which would be under the age of 36. We keep saying he, but obviously a male who presents as gay. And I say that because we can't say with any certainty that this individual is actually gay. We know that at least at times he presents himself as being gay. And we know that he likely frequents a neighborhood where there is a high percentage of gay residents and or other places that are frequented by gay men. Based on Mr. DiMartino's preferences and also considering the possibility that this offender took some clothes of Mr. DiMartino's or changed into some clothes of Mr. DiMartino's, we would say that he is likely of slight build, at least thin, and he is the same size or smaller than Mr. DiMartino was in that. And we say that because if he used to fit into his clothes and not look conspicuous, he could be smaller and just adjust the clothing appropriately, but he could not be larger and therefore not be able to fit into Mr. DiMartino's clothing. Okay, so this is a man who, back in July of 2010, would have frequented this neighborhood of San Francisco, the Castro District. It doesn't mean he lived there, but he was comfortable visiting the area. He may have commuted there or walked there. He may have resided in a Spanish-speaking community, but visited the Castro District when he was going out to socialize. Think back to 2010, Spanish-speaking male, slender, at least at the time, presented as gay with ties to the Castro District. What about his personality traits and characteristics? Well, we know from descriptions of Mr. DiMartino and his sexual preferences that he preferred to be a dominant partner. At least someone who was of a less dominant type personality. In terms of a sexual relationship. Yes. Yes. We do not expect that this individual would be someone who is a repeat violent offender. I would not expect that due to the lack of sophistication in this case and the fact that there were no potential cases that were brought to us that they thought might have been linked to the same offender with a lot of the same activities going on. Also, there was staging here, which needs to be considered that this was a particular situation, not something that was part of a, a regular occurrence on the part of the offender. This was something particular to Mr. DiMartino in his relationship with this offender. Personality-wise, as previously mentioned by Julia, there is the potential here for this person to have some emotional problems, someone who might be considered to overreact in certain situations, depending on what the trigger might be, what other individuals might consider to be an exaggerated response to slights or to something that happens in their, some other interaction with another individual. It might be considered that they overreacted or were overly emotional in response. 
So as opposed to being the combative dominant personality, it is more likely that this individual is someone who may tolerate a good deal of being even bullied until a certain level is reached, after which he may go from being meek to being deadly. That may very well be what happened here. And his temper, even if it's not in a violent interaction, his temperament is such that you would expect to see an extreme change in his demeanor, maybe even seemingly understimulated to extremely overstimulated in a second's time. He is that kind of individual, as opposed to someone who is confrontative right from the start or bullying or dominant right from the start. He is someone that would be a surprise. Based on his usual presentation, his propensity and his level of agitation would be not anticipated, especially not to the extremes that he could go. Particularly if he feels someone is being disloyal to him. I think this person feels that in his relationships, people should be loyal to him. He demands it. If you know this individual, you might be surprised he expects such a level of loyalty under the circumstances and so early on in a relationship. He is likely possessive and gets very jealous. Do you think that that means it has to be somebody that he's known before? Because you could still have that personality characteristic, even if it's somebody you don't know that well, right? But you wouldn't stage. I think that although Philip preferred to be single, this was likely a person he had contact with before, and the person was likely even in his apartment before. And this person may only be known to the victim. Therein lies the problem with identifying him. The staging, though, I agree with Bob. The cleaning and bandaging of the wounds and the possible changing of the clothes, I can see how that time spent may be necessary to go undetected. But the notes took up even more time, and most people, after committing that type of crime, would want to get out of there as quickly as possible. And as Susan pointed out, the writing of the notes gives us more evidence as to who this offender is. He felt a level of comfort in the apartment. How did he know someone, a friend or neighbor, wasn't going to stop by at any moment? With regards to the note, do you think there's any effort on his part to sort of out loud justify what has happened? Yes. It feels to me too like he is conflicted. In the background on this is also some type of confliction with kind of what he feels and where he's going and well, there's also religiosity in there, given guilt let, coming out. Well, let's say that. let's say a, someone of us of Spanish origin, it's not surprising that they would be conflicted about homosexuality. It's not surprising that they would also be very religious, particularly Roman Catholic. Based on the information that we have about this crime and the indications we have about who this offender might be. I think we can say that it is likely that he is conflicted, personally conflicted. I believe that there is guilt experienced by this individual. So as opposed to someone who is a psychopathic killer, this is someone who feels guilt, not only about immoral acts like murder, 
but in acts or activities that he or people whose opinions he deems are just engaging in things that would be condemned by those people. So there is an underlying religious, without getting into the specifics of the notes, there is a subtle and underlying religious and or moral theme that goes through these notes. And I believe that wherever this individual got this, he is influenced by things or was influenced by things in his life that may have condemned homosexuality, may have looked very poorly on disloyalty, and may have felt things were deemed immoral or in opposition to the teachings that he received would be condemned by God. This may be a cultural or, or environmental influence, but it is strong enough where it comes out even under these extremely stressful circumstances in what is likely one of the most stressful events of his life. These are the things that bubble up in his communication. And as a result, there would likely be some guilt associated with this event. So behavior that's indicative of guilt would likely to have been observed immediately following this event. And might even be observed up to this day. The offender may have confessed to someone, or he may have said, I've done something so horrible I can't speak about it, or I've done something unforgivable. This is likely something that eats away at the offender and may come out if he's intoxicated or highly emotional about something. He may have told perhaps not this whole story, but bits and pieces of this story. This crime is something that he likely thinks about each and every day. And there are other post-defense behaviors that individuals might have observed of this person. Again, we're going back 12 years to 2010. And just some other things to think about as some examples of what this post-offender might be that something as significant as this could cause them to change their behaviors and or their routines. So for example, if they had been a steady employee at a job, that might change. Maybe their behavior there becomes a little more erratic or they become more withdrawn or maybe they stop working there. Some of this could be done just in order to avoid detection by the police if the offender feels that there's something that caused the police to focus on that they might change their routine. They might change their employment. If they were living somewhere close by in the area, they may have moved. Another thing to consider is that if, as we suspect that the offender was injured during the homicide, that they would have suddenly appeared injured and then tried to come up with an excuse as to why they had an injury to their hand or why they had maybe more than one cut to their body. They may have taken sick leave suddenly after being a regular employee. If they had delayed seeking medical help for that injury, then maybe they had resulted in an infection that they had to deal with. You could see an increase or a decrease in, say, their use of alcohol and or drugs. Someone who, again, maybe had a very regular routine and then suddenly is absent or suddenly decides to take a trip immediately after this time period with really no explanation. I'm just always, well, I just needed to get away. Any type of change in a plan or in a routine, especially if this is someone who was usually very routine in some of their efforts, they could have been someone who was more than normally focused on news media 
any type of attention that was paid to this homicide with the news media that maybe they had kind of an exaggerated response to that or an avoidance of the subject of murder, say this had come up, say, among individuals at I'm sure this was a topic of discussion among a lot of the social gathering places in the Castro area. It had to be. It got media attention. It had to be a study. Folks had to be concerned, especially because the offender was not identified. So this might be someone who was either had an extremely focused on this, or it could be someone, I mean, the opposite of it could be someone who's like, I don't want to talk about that, immediately removes themselves from the conversation and completely avoids any talk about the investigation whatsoever. If this person frequented gay meeting areas and or bars, etc., may have stopped doing so for at least a period of time, particularly while the hand injury was fresh, there may have also been a sudden renewal in expressed religiosity or frequenting church, etc. Up to and including, in the case of Roman Catholics, confession. However, under the rules of the Catholic Church, that is privileged communications. However, this individual, if a practitioner of that religion, may very well have gone to confession and confessed this murder to a priest. But whether or not that's the case, renewed religiosity, whether at home, whether taking interest in reading the Bible, talking in terms of religion, in terms of heaven and hell, etc., etc. We've talked about a lot of different alterations of either behaviors or routines, but I think for anyone listening, and especially anyone who was in that area at the time, and again, going back to 2010, the bottom line would be a sudden change in the immediate time frame of this homicide that you recall an individual who had an immediate change in behavior or in routine. We've given you examples of several different ways that that could happen, but it would have been noticeable to someone who knew that person or at least saw them on a regular basis. And, and that's what we'd be looking for in this case. It's not uncommon for people to be uncomfortable contacting the police department because they don't want to get somebody into trouble or they're not sure that the nuance of what they noticed is going to be important. But you have to really reach into your mind and trust your instincts if something like what Sue and Bob were just talking about is something that you noticed or any of the things basically that we've talked about. And go ahead and just like Julia said in the beginning, give just give a name and let the police do the rest. Unlike offenders in other cases we've discussed who don't feel remorse for what they've done, we strongly believe this offender does feel bad and feels guilt. He would have reacted to that guilt, and that reaction may have been noticeable by those who know him. Those who know him would have noticed something. That's another difficult spot for people that are associated or friends with somebody they think that may have done something wrong or may have been involved in something, especially if it's this type of crime. But the ultimate goal is to get relief for the family of the victim. If you saw something back then, suspected something back then, or still suspect something, I want to remind you not to worry about being wrong because the San Francisco Police Department will be able to rule out innocent individuals. If you know someone now who fits the profile of the unknown offender we've discussed, 
look to see if they have any scars on their hands. The most likely area of injury would be in the web of their dominant hand between their thumb and pointer finger. I would also like to say something to the offender. This has been no way to live. You've held on to this for too long and it's time to come forward. You can provide the answers to Philip's family and friends, and by doing that, I assure that you will finally be at peace. If you have any information about the murder of Philip DiMartino, please contact the San Francisco Police Department Homicide Detail at 415-553-1145. Or you can contact the anonymous tip line at 415-575-4444. 575-4444. Please help solve this murder. Again, all they need is a name. That's it for this episode of The Consult. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Consult Pod. Thank you for listening.